I'm glad you found your way to the Your Vet Wants You to Know podcast for more information about how to care for your pet. The show is designed to be educational and entertaining, but not to give a specific diagnosis or treatment for your animal. That job belongs to your veterinarian who knows your pet and wants to talk to you about what's going on with them. I'm here to be a resource only. Thanks and enjoy the show. As a curious pet owner, have you ever taken to the internet for more information? Maybe you want to know why your pet is itchy and what you can do about it. Maybe you're frustrated about the ear infections. Maybe you're looking for ways to make veterinary care more affordable. Instead of wading through a sea of information that may not be reliable and in some cases may be harmful, here is what your vet wants you to know. I'm Dr. Brittany Lancelotti, board certified veterinary dermatology specialist. Join me to get the information you're looking for to care for your pet. If you're curious about your pet, then your vet wants you to know. Welcome everyone to today's episode of Your Vet Wants You to Know. We have a special episode today talking about cholecalciferol toxicity, which is a type of rat bait. And to talk about this particular toxicity, I have with me Dr. Amanda Zetwo, who not only is very knowledgeable about this particular toxin, but also went through a very personal experience of her own. And I'm so thankful that she has come to share that experience with everyone in hopes that it can help some other pet owners in the future to either avoid this or help guide them through the situation that they may be in. So thank you very much for being with us, Dr. Zetwo. Thank you so much for having me. I recommend your podcast and I, I this is such a great resource for owners. Thank you so much. So just to give our listeners a little bit of a background, um, you are originally from Pittsburgh, and you've been practicing in veterinary medicine in some way, shape, or form for almost 20 years now. But you and I were classmates together at Western University in California when we went to veterinary school, which was wonderful. I loved hiking with you and your husband, Greg, and having you guys over for Sunday family dinners. It was a really nice time together. Yes, those were definitely the highlights of California for sure. Yeah. And then after graduation, you kind of worked in a a hybrid general practice ER uh, hospital out in California and then moved back to Pennsylvania. Yeah, we did. It was really great experience out there. I thought we were going to stay out there for a while and life happens and we ended up coming back towards the East Coast and I've worked a couple jobs out here, mainly general practice, emergency all the species, domestic, exotic, avian, if it walked through the door, I'd see it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And now you are medical director for Animal Friends Clinic and Community Services. Congratulations. Thank you. That kind of fell into my lap as well. Um, I was working a full-time job at the ER general practice I was at, but I really missed surgery. And so the local clinic needed some help out with spay and neuter and various surgeries. And so I started doing relief there, you know, one day a week or a couple times a month. And it blossomed into a a really nice opportunity. And so in January of 2020, I started there full time and we've now grown it to have a general practice, a mobile surgical unit, dentistry, vaccine clinics, um, high quality, high volume spay neuter, but also various soft tissue and orthopedic procedures as well. So it sounds like you get to do a lot of really interesting things throughout the course of the day and the practice offers a lot to the community. It does. It's a nice affordable option, especially with COVID. You know, 
pet retention is our number one goal. So what can we do to keep that pet in the home? Do they need food? We have chow wagon. We'll get food delivered to them. Or if they just need affordable vet care, just helping to control the population and just keep that pet with that family. That's wonderful. What a beautiful mission. So you are going to tell us a story today about some of the pets that you have in your home. I know you have two dogs, a blind cat and a rabbit, but we're going to focus on those two dogs um, and what happened with them and this connection with the topic for today. So why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners what you've been through and a little bit about Coley Calciferol. Okay, well, we have Faith. She is a 13-year-old female spade Australian shepherd. Um, She's pretty much my best friend. She's been with me through everything. She was the flower girl in our wedding. She moved from Pennsylvania to California and then back again. And then just this summer, we added Moses, who is a, a male Australian shepherd puppy, into our home. And we've been working on training with him. And so the Sunday night before Christmas, we decided to go down to this field in our neighborhood and do some off-leash recall training. And it was about 8 p.m. at night, and it was dark because it's winter. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. we had about three inches of snow on the ground. And at one point, Faith and Moses were chomping away at something. So I called them off, and they listened. I just assumed it was deer or bunny poop, aka manna from heaven for dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we just had a normal night and came home. The next morning at about 7.30 a.m., I'm getting ready for work, and Faith vomited three bright green round logs about the size of a Tootsie Roll and had some yellow bile. And literally, my first thought on seeing the green color was, oh my God, that's rat bait. But the consistency was different to what I'm used to seeing. It was more moldable versus a crumbly block. So I thought... There's no way this is rat bait. We live in seven fields, which at one point was the third safest township in the country. We were literally right beside a playground. It's an open field. There's woods and a stream. I literally thought because we were by a playground, I bet a kid dropped Play-Doh, like green Play-Doh while playing. So I don't know, I guess denial. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I took pictures. I collected the green logs in a plastic bag. And I posted this to a veterinary emergency group I'm in. Um, And I told Greg, hey, you're on standby. I might call you to bring the dogs in. And I headed off to work. And I started to get some responses, everything from, oh, I bet it's goose poop to wasabi. Um, I thought that was a really clever one because it really looked like wasabi. But the most reoccurring comment was, that's rat bait until proven otherwise. So I checked the material under the microscope and it wasn't goose poop. And my technician called the ASPCA poison control and she gave them the gist of the story and got an account set up. And then a toxicologist called me back and that doctor was just so helpful. I was able to send him pictures of what I had that morning And we talked about the different consistency, and he educated me that in 2018, Decon started transitioning their rat bait from a vitamin K product to a vitamin D product. 
And vitamin K, everybody kind of knows that one. That's the one where it will not allow your pet to form a blood clot. And so they'll eat it. And like three to five days later, they might start just slowly bleeding into their belly and their chest. And so now it's a vitamin D formula. And they also came out with a new cake formula. And that cake formula, you can actually mold it like Play-Doh into shapes. And so you can put it around things versus the hard, solid blocks that I was familiar with. And so he helped me create a decontamination plan and just give me a wealth of information. Yeah, that ASPCA poison control line is so valuable. I really feel like every pet owner should have the information to be able to call the poison control line as soon as they think something is up so that they can establish an account talk to the services that they have there. It's really helpful in trying to figure out exactly what the danger level is for an animal based on what they ingested, their body weight, and then the ASPCA poison control toxicology veterinarians will work with the emergency room veterinarians to come up with a treatment plan. So definitely an invaluable resource for pet owners. And I'll have more information about the ASPCA poison control line in the show notes so people can have have that um, readily available if you are a pet owner that is a must-have agreed and then also vitamin K, I did an episode with Dr. Monica Sterk where we talked about the vitamin K specific rat bait. So if you're interested in learning more about the, the classic vitamin K toxicity and rat poison, that's a great episode to listen to as well. So Dr. Zetwo, tell me a little bit about cholecalciferol, this different type of rat poison. What is it used for and how does it work? So cholecalciferol is actually vitamin D and it's D3 specifically. And you might be thinking, well, how can a vitamin be toxic? Um, especially when D3 is added to milk and butter and it's found naturally in egg yolks in the sun. Um, you know, it helps build strong bones and teeth and it helps with your muscles and nerves. But vitamins can be toxic if they are fat soluble. And when you hear vitamin, you tend to think of water-soluble, like vitamin C and vitamin B. And if your body doesn't need more than it has in it, it's just going to pee out the extra. But there's four vitamins that are fat-soluble, and that's vitamin K, A, D, E, kind of the name Cade. So any extra vitamin D in your pet it's going to be stored in the fat and the liver for future use, but too much of that can actually be toxic. So if we are suspicious that the pet has eaten this rat bait, you know, if the pet owner has actually seen the pet eat the poison or the pet has vomited it up like Faith did, what information would be important to tell the veterinarian so that they can come up with a diagnostic and treatment plan? That's a great question. The more information, the better. Rat bait is usually green in color, so that's your first clue. If you see a pet chewing on a green block or vomit, anything that is green, an alarm bell should go off. There's a few different types of rat bait out there. They all work a little differently. The most common thing I heard while I was on ER is people had recently moved and their pet found a green block in the basement in a kitchen corner, the attic, or a shed that the previous owner had put out. With this 
rat bait, the most likely first thing you could see in your pet is a lack of appetite, followed by them drinking more, urinating more, and then they're not going to want to drink or eat or make any urine. There could be vomiting, diarrhea, belly pain, lots of drooling, looking weak, even seizures. So that's if a pet owner doesn't see the animal eat the rat bait. Those would be the first things that they would see. Yes. Yeah. A couple of days later, once it's been absorbed, that could be one of the first things you see. It's important to tell your vet as much as possible about a timeline and pertinent details as possible, such as when may your pet have eaten the rat bait, possibly how much, the consistency and color of any vomit or stool, where your pet has been in the last two to three days, and where possible contamination may have occurred. If your pet does vomit or have a bowel movement, bring that with you to the ER. If you yourself put out the rat bait and you still have the original packaging, bring that with you as well. Also a reminder that this toxicity can come from not just rat bait, but if a pet may get into a vitamin supplement or a bottle of vitamin D, this potentially could occur depending on the dose. I know with COVID right now, I'm personally taking extra zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D to help boost my immune system. So I have bottles of all of that in my medicine cupboard right now. Um, many Americans are low on their vitamin D and may be taking a supplement as prescribed by their doctor. And this reminds me of a story of once on emergency, I had a client and she was packing to go on a week long trip and she was putting all of her prescriptions and vitamins into a Ziploc bag for each day of the trip. And she left the room and when she had come back, the dog had eaten all of the bags. Oh um, no. Yeah. <laughs> and um, poison control, again, was just an absolute lifesaver that day because she called ahead and she read off every prescription medication, the strength, how many were in the total bags, and she read off each vitamin and what was in every one of them. So by the time she came into the hospital, poison control and I already had a treatment plan and we were ready to go to start treating the second that dog walked in. That's wonderful. It sounds like she was prepared as far as getting ready for her trip, but then also prepared as far as bringing her dogs into the emergency room. The pet was not a first-time offender. She was very familiar with poison control. Oh, no. Yeah. Let me guess. Was it a lab? It was actually a Jack Russell. Okay. It can be just I would have thought a lab, though. <laughs> yeah. So if the pet owner has seen the animal eating this particular type of rat bait or they get into a vitamin D supplement, or if this is something that the veterinarian suspects, what sort of tests should a pet owner expect the veterinarian to recommend and what are they looking for? So what did you test Faith and Moses for? Definitely be prepared for a lot of blood work. This is a really intense toxicity and values can change really quickly. So at least daily blood work for a couple days to a week, potentially if they're hospitalized even multiple times a day, checking levels. And what exactly are we looking for in those levels? Where is the vitamin D going to be uh, affecting the body and how is that going to change the blood work values? Great question. So basically too much vitamin D is going to turn the kidneys and the heart and other soft tissue organs into bone, which is no good. To make sure that's not happening, we're going to be looking at mainly calcium and phosphorus values in a chemistry panel, among a few others. Um, those two can go high 
and potassium can go low. So we want to check those at least daily for four days and making sure that they're not trending upward each day. And so what did you see with Moses and Faith? Well, Faith, um, you know, she's an adult, so her values fall into the adult range. And I was checking those daily, and there were slight elevations, but never hit a critical threshold. But Moses, he's a puppy, and so he has growing bones. So his calcium and phosphorus values are already higher being a puppy versus an adult range. So him having a baseline number starting on Monday and checking it each day was really important to make sure that his values weren't trending upward because we already started with values that were technically out of the normal range with him being a puppy. So it's not just where one single value is. It's important for the veterinarian to see what's happening on different days over a course of time. A hundred percent. There can also be some blood clotting issues as well. So at the appropriate time, you want to check a clotting panel. A vitamin D panel may or may not be recommended. It's a fairly, we'll say, academic test to run. With vitamin D, you don't want to run that panel until it's already been absorbed by the body. So we wouldn't run that on Monday, you know, within 24 hours of them getting the toxin. You'd want to check it at like day three to five to see if those levels are high. But by that time, your pet's already going to be showing clinical signs. And a lot of us, you know, won't run a test unless it's going to change how we're going to treat the pet. Um, I did run it in Faith and Moses just because I was curious and the value was mid-range, which just kind of helped me make sure it wasn't at a catastrophic level. Yeah. So we've gone through a little bit about what you might see when this happens, what sort of tests the veterinarian's going to do. How about treatment? How are these pets going to be treated and what should pet owners expect during that process? And I know that not every animal is going to be treated the same, but how might the treatment differ based on how long the poison's been in the body? First, it's important to note that there is no antidote for this. There's things we can do, but there's no magic reversal for pets or children that could ingest decon. Honestly, I was envisioning having to euthanize them both on Christmas Eve if they were dying, and it absolutely destroyed me to picture that. That's heartbreaking. I'm so sorry you went through this. Thank you. It definitely was an educational opportunity, and hopefully we can help others from it. Um you know, I felt if they were going to, you know, have a bad outcome from this, at least if I couldn't change the outcome, I could change the process and give them that gift versus letting them suffer and their last few days or hours be, you know, really painful. Yeah. That said, though, I was ready to try everything and fight with whatever I could to keep them here. We started with inducing vomiting again. That was a bit overkill as Faith had already vomited that morning, which was just a gift that she did. She has always kind of had this weird gut and like clockwork if she ate something she shouldn't have or that didn't agree with her. Right at about 12 hours, she would bring it up. She got into a corn cob once, brought it up, a cooked potato another time, just random. <laughs> Um, But I'm really glad she kind of has that. Making Moses vomit was a bit of a Hail Mary because at 12 hours post-exposure, it almost definitely absorbed. And I can't explain why Faith didn't absorb it. 
but I got lucky with it still being in her stomach that morning. My guess is that it was wrapped in some delicious meat and that absorbed before the blocks did. So I figured I'd at least try for Moses. He was empty, no blocks, which meant he either digested any he did eat or that maybe Faith got to all of them before he had a chance. With Faith, she had brought up three, but I didn't know if maybe she ate seven and four were digested or if any were left. So it was worth a shot. And then I also put on gloves and I combed through their poop from the last night and that morning and then all future bowel movements for about 24 hours because that's true love right there. (laughs) Um, And I didn't see any further green material. Unfortunately, with most poisoning cases, there's usually more questions than answers. So you are very lucky that Faith (laughs) has that kind of, I guess, whatever the opposite of a stomach of steel is. Um, (laughs) She just wanted that out of her body. Um, And I have to say, there are some really wonderful pictures of Dr. Zetwell and her husband, Greg, working with Faith and Moses during this ordeal and Moses having a trash bag around his neck for this induction of vomiting. So you guys can check out those pictures on the website also to see how adorable the dogs are too. So (laughs) tell us a little bit about how to uh, induce vomiting and what comes next. We induce vomiting with an injection of a medication, and it works very well. Um, And that's just kind of a nice little ER pro tip there. Put a plastic bag over the dog, um, cut a hole out for their head, and it'll help keep them clean from the vomiting. And then the recommendation was to give activated charcoal to both dogs. And activated charcoal, it comes in a liquid, and it's thought to help bind and clear the toxins. Again, this is ideally given within a few hours of ingestion, but there was really very little downside to giving it at 12 hours post-exposure, so we tried it. Most dogs will not eat this willingly, and you have to syringe it orally, and they want to spit it out, it dribbles out, and pretty much everything in a five-foot radius is going to be covered in charcoal, (laughs) people included. (laughs) And charcoal, for those who are not familiar with it, it is as black as you can get and it will get everything black. Yes, and it will stain. So Moses being a kind of a goofy, derpy puppy, we took a chance and we mixed his charcoal with really yummy canned food and he actually ate it. So he was the MVP of the day. Um, Good for him. (laughs) Yeah. But for Faith, we had to syringe it. And we're not talking like a small amount here. We're talking like two or three cans of Pepsi, trying to get that kind of volume down into a a dog that doesn't want it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not an easy task. No. And so then we gave fluids to both of the dogs because the solution to pollution is? Dilution. That was probably the best thing I learned in vet school. (laughs) Uh Um, So it couldn't hurt and it's going to help hydrate the body. Um, We're going to make the kidneys happy. We're going to flush out the toxins. So that was just one more thing we did that day. And then the toxicologist at ASPCA recommended a medication. I had never heard of it before, but it was called cholestyramine or cholestyramine which is used in human medicine for lowering cholesterol, among a few other things. The thought was that it could help bind the excess vitamin D in the body and help clear it from the liver. But it comes in a really horrible powder that is citrus flavored. Um, And I don't know a single dog or cat that likes citrus. (laughs) 
<laughs> but again, it was a human medication and I was willing to try anything. But we also had to make sure it wasn't the human diabetic formula because those packets are sweetened with xylitol, which is fine for people, but is toxic to dogs. So mm-hmm. didn't want to have a second poisoning, um, but we ended up finding it. Pharmacist was super helpful. And we had to give that every eight hours for four days, like clockwork. Um, we were setting alarms and waking up in the middle of the night. And the last dose was actually Christmas morning, which was kind of a, a nice way to end it. We had to mix it into a ton of different foods, baby foods, gravies, just anything to try and get Faith to take it. Because again, Moses would eat it in canned food. He was actually fine, but Faith ended up getting sick from it. She developed a condition called pancreatitis, but thankfully I could manage that at home and she didn't need to be hospitalized. I also got really nervous because the first sign that we could see of vitamin D poisoning would be her not wanting to eat. So Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell, do you not want to eat because there is a horrible citrus powder in your food or because your kidneys are failing. So that was not a fun game to play for a couple days, but we got through it. And then with rat bait, the crappy thing is by the time a pet starts showing signs, you're usually three to five days into the poisoning and the prognosis is really guarded The best chance of treating this is within four hours and being able to decontaminate them by inducing vomiting, giving activated charcoal fluids, the whole shebang, checking blood work. But if they eat it and you don't see it happen, usually they have already absorbed it. Depending on the dose, the outcome could be really sad. So while for Faith and Moses, I did most of the treatments at home and I was able to run into work each day. For most people, you're going to need to plan to admit them to a hospital with 24 care and plan on that being a couple days, potentially up to a week. If they are showing signs of poisoning, it could even be longer. Yeah, these dogs definitely need a lot of supportive care and a place that has 24-hour-a-day facilities is going to be really crucial in making sure that they are given the supportive care that they need to get their bodies through this. With Faith and Moses, they were about at around 12 hours after ingestion when you found out um, that that's what was going on with them. Yeah. So I was in slightly unchartered waters from working in ER. I can say I don't think I have ever had a case that was in between like Faith and Moses. Every case that I can remember, either, you know, number one, the owners saw them eat the rat bait or medication, bottle of supplements, whatever, and they immediately call us and brought their pet in where I could induce vomiting within hours of them eating something that they shouldn't have and start treatment. And all of those pets actually did really well. If you can decontaminate you know, within that four-hour window and get the charcoal and everything into them, you usually have a, a much better prognosis. Or number two, it was days after they ate the rat bait and the pet owner had no idea until their pet was sick. Some of those cases had a good ending, um, albeit an expensive experience due to very intensive care and treatments, and some had some really sad endings. And I think that's the hardest part of this. It's not their fault that they ate it. You know, they didn't know what it was going to do. The innocence of a pet being duped into eating something that could kill them is just really hard to take as a healer. 
Yeah. And I'm sure as the pet owner too, you know, we don't intend for our pets to get into these things. And unfortunately it happens, but fortunately there are a lot of really experienced veterinarians, not only in emergency rooms, but also with the ASPCA toxicology service. Um, They are there to try and help get through these crises. This whole ordeal that you went through sounds incredibly nerve wracking. What would you say pet owners can do to help prevent this from happening to them? I even talk about some of these recommendations at, you know, puppy visits and trying to just prepare people because if you have a puppy, it's not an if, but a when they're going to eat something that they shouldn't have or something's Mm going to drop on the floor. So my recommendations are, I've got a, a couple for you. First, keep medications in a really safe place. And I know that's obvious, but it serves repeating. Two, train a solid, leave it command in case you drop medication and your pet is nearby or you drop some food that could make them sick, anything. You want to be able to say, leave it, and they know what that means. Three, I would watch out for pet food recalls. Vitamin D is added to food. It's added to our milk and butter. They add it to pet food and accidents can happen. So just be aware of any alerts that come out about a food recall. Four, if you move into a new home, I would scour every nook and cranny inside and outside for open bait blocks. There are these black boxes that house rat bait, and those are considered child and pet friendly um, because you can't touch the physical block. The animal should go into the black box chew off a piece of the bait and then go back to their home. But I I know a lot of dogs that like to chew and will chew anything. So don't let your guard down and be aware of what's in your home. And then unfortunately, there is just true evil in the world and people who will maliciously set out rat bait where children and pets could get to them. We were literally right by a playground. A child could have picked up these logs and eaten them. Yeah. Why this is available over the counter and not through a licensed professional exterminator raises a good question just about safety. I would love to see that change in my lifetime or at least the black boxes where the bait is contained and is pet and child friendly be available over the counter would be a step in the right direction versus just having access to the blocks in their raw state. We were bordered by a stream and a set of woods by the playground, and we do get a lot of wildlife in our neighborhood, so it's possible someone was intending this bait for wildlife. But again, that raises very serious safety and humane questions. Yeah, and that's another good reason to have the leave it command trained because you guys were out by the park. You didn't expect there to be anything that the dog shouldn't get into, but unfortunately there was something there. So, you know, Faith and Moses, they're very good. And I'm sure they listened as soon as you said, leave it. But, uh, you know, unfortunately in that case, it was a little bit too late. They had already gotten into it. Yeah. So I'm sure after going through and and talking about Faith and Moses throughout this episode, our listeners are dying to know, after everything you went through, what happened with them? Well, thank God they are okay and they are still here with us. Christmas Day was extra special because it was the first day in over 96 hours that I feel I could take a breath. Um, You know, we weren't completely out of the woods, but we were starting to feel hopeful. And thankfully, each blood work has been good. Just it's scary because Faith is a senior. She's geriatric. If she would have went into kidney failure, I probably would have just thought, oh, old age, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. I would have never thought vitamin D 
Um, so I'm just so thankful that she vomited those blocks and that they pulled through. And I am just so thankful that they are still here with me today. I bet. Now, I don't know Moses, but I know Faith, and yeah. she is a truly, truly remarkable dog. And uh, what a absolute blessing that she just vomited those blocks up. And I'm just, I'm so thankful that I saw her vomit those blocks up because I'm pretty sure, you know, my husband, he's very intelligent, but he might have just thought, well, those are weird and picked them up and thrown them away and Mm -hmm. told me when I got home from work that night, oh, Faith vomited this morning and there was something green in them. But to have the experience and have that warning of, hey, this looks like rat bait. Yeah, I'm really thankful they're doing great. That's wonderful. Dr. Zetwell, wonderful. Thank you. So now pet owners know anything vomited that's green, that should send off a big alarm bell um, that it's time to call the ASPCA poison control as quickly as possible. Green is not good in this situation. Agreed. So for our listeners, if you would like to see pictures of Faith and Moses and Dr. Zetwo and her husband, Greg, working on them during this ordeal, um, you can go to www.yourvetwantsyoutoknow.com to take a look at those pictures as well as read the transcript. There are links to the ASPCA poison control website and the phone number in the show notes as well as on the website. If you have been through some type of toxicity um, and have had to go to the emergency room with your pet, I would love for you to share your story with other listeners in our Facebook group um, so you can join and tell us about what you went through and help to educate other people so that they don't go through the same thing. I like to end each episode with a segment called Scratching the Itch. And this is something that either provides relief or just makes you feel good, hence Scratching the Itch. (laughs) Now, I know, uh, Dr. Zetwo, that you have a really remarkable Scratching the Itch for us today. And I'm so excited for you to tell this story because it is (laughs) truly inspiring. So please share with us your Scratching the Itch. Well, my scratching the itch has to be doing triathlons. And this is a neat one for me because it is so not something in my wheelhouse. It's not something I'm naturally good at. In fact, the first half marathon I ever saw was with you and Steven, where we were cheering him on at the Disneyland half in 2011. I just remember thinking, there is no way I could ever, and I meant ever, run 13.1 miles. I had a bunch of personal health issues and whatnot over the years to the point where if we fast forward to my um, 30th birthday, the day after it, I started a immunosuppressive medication. And that's a four-hour long infusion to calm down my overactive immune system. And I was pretty down about that. I felt pretty bad about myself and that, you know, my body wasn't doing just what it should. And a couple weeks, months into the treatment, I actually started to feel better at 30 than I did in all of my teens and 20s. And about six months later, it was April, and I was talking to a friend and I said, in one year, I'm going to run the Pittsburgh half marathon, which was a year later in May. And I started training and I did one of those like couch to 5k apps and those are fabulous. I can't say enough about those. Those are great. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some walking and running and I, I started increasing my distance and of course I got injured. I pulled a muscle in my leg and then I was 
all depressed again because I knew it took me so long to get where I was. And my friend recommended, hey, why don't you swim and bike to keep up your cardio so I wouldn't lose all the progress I made. And so I joined the YMCA and it was bad. Like it was not, (laughs) it was not graceful. Um, The uh, YMCA lifeguard, who was probably 70, uh, you know, was going to be the person to rescue me. Um, But I had more faith in his swimming skills than I had in my own. So it was okay. Um, I mean, I, I couldn't even do a lap. I could not get the breathing down. I would stick my head out of the water and exhale correctly. But then I would stick my face in the water and inhale. <laughs> like <laughs> I couldn't, I didn't even go into the deep end. I would just swim where my feet could still reach and turn around and do laps that way because I was afraid of the deep end. Um, I, it was bad. I was winded. Um, yeah. So, I mean, not, not a natural athlete here. Um, and basically, I just kept going even when my foot started to feel better because it was really good cross training. And I thought, well, I'm already swimming, biking, and running. Screw it. Let's sign up for a triathlon. And so that May, I actually did run and finish the Pittsburgh half marathon. And then in July, we did the Rev 3 Williamsburg, Virginia sprint triathlon, which is a short distance. It's called a sprint. It's only a 500-yard swim, a 15-mile bike, and a 3.1-mile run. And it's a great distance just to get your feet wet. And it was just the nicest environment for the person who comes in last. They actually radio and send somebody to run with you. And all the volunteers gather around the finish line and they open champagne and they make a really big deal out of it. It's super motivating. Um, You know, I didn't come in last at that run, but it was really nice to watch like, oh, this is what they do. So I kind of thought all races did this. Um, (laughs) I was wrong. (laughs) So Greg and I got really hooked and we're like, let's sign up for one the very next month, literally like the beginning of July to the next one was August 19th. And it was double the distance. So then it was a 750 yard swim, a 30 mile bike and a 6.2 mile run. And we had no training and we're like, we can do it. Um, And I I won't call that a mistake, but it was definitely a learning opportunity. Um, Okay. (laughs) I I choked on the swim and I literally halfway in the water was like, I'm going to quit. But then I realized, well, I'm halfway. I pretty much would have to swim back or get on one of the kayaks. So I just finished it. And then I got on the bike and one of the hills was so steep that I actually had to get off my bike and walk it up the hill. (laughs) Um, And then uh, a little chaser car came around and it pulled up to Greg and I, and it said, are you guys the last ones? And I looked at the guy and I said, well, we probably are if you're asking that. (laughs) And he he drove off. No, like, good luck. You know, you can do it. Just drove off. So then we started the run and I passed a woman and I was like, I passed somebody. I'm not going to be last. Score. Um, And then finished my second lap and Greg and I crossed the finish line and the entire place was deserted except for one guy with two medals who promptly handed us our medals and got in his car and left. Um, <laughs> and so there was no water, no beverages, like nothing. Um, it was it was deserted. And apparently the girl I had passed dropped out and didn't finish her second run lap. So we actually did finish last. Um, But there's a really great acronym in triathlons that goes DFL is greater than DNF, which is greater than DNS. So dead flipping last is greater than did not finish, which is greater than did not start. And that just really speaks to me. 
I love that so much. That's such a powerful statement. Isn't it? Like that just, that really gets to me. And so less than a year later, Greg and I traveled to Canada and did a half Ironman in Victoria on Vancouver Island. And a half Ironman is a 1.2 mile swim, a 56 mile bike and a 13.1 mile run. And you need to do it in about under eight and a half hours. And for me, it's truly about the finish line. I don't care what my time is. It's more about a challenge that I picked and I chose versus one that's picked for me, like health issues. And they say that 90% of a triathlon is just knowing how to suffer. I went to vet school. I know about that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just that mindset of this is what I'm doing today. I can't be reached for the next eight hours. I get to stop when I cross the finish line. And there is something just super empowering and very freeing about that, even if you suck at it. Well, it sounds like at this point, you no longer suck at it. You and Greg have (laughs) been really doing an amazing job with these races. And it's so inspiring to see how far you've come. I'm really, really impressed. And this certainly did make me feel good and scratch the itch for me. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I am so thankful for you coming on the show and sharing your story of faith in Moses. I really hope it helps to educate some people and and prevent some disasters in the future um, so that people are more aware of what to watch for and what to do if they find themselves in this situation. Um, So thank you so much, Dr. Zetwell, for sharing this story with our listeners today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And for all of our listeners, I look forward to your next visit with Your Vet Wants You to Know. 